Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Jack of All. Um, all right, so I'm not a big concert guy. I don't know if concert to your cup of tea or not. Biggest concert I think I ever went to was a U2 concert. And I went and no doubt was opening for them. And I was so pissed because who in their right mind wants to see no doubt that almost ruined the whole thing for me. I couldn't even watch U2. I was just thinking of Gwen Stefani whining all over the stage. But my favorite genre of music is like acoustic soul. You know, like, uh, if you know these names, Alan Stone, Chris Stapleton, who's, I guess, technically country, but is just so soul and blues. Jason Mraz, acoustic stuff. Like, those are my guys. So for me, concerts don't make that much sense, you know? There's not a lot of pyrotechnics in an acoustic show, so that's never been my thing. However, the older I get, the more I understand it, because um, there are bands that have broken up or people who have died that I think, dang, man, I would have loved to have seen them live, you know, like comedians, for instance. That's kind of where this makes the most sense to me. Because one of my bragging points is I got the opportunity to see Mitch Hedberg uh, before he died. He's a comedian. Um, look him up, man. He's just, he is so funny. His, his jokes are all in the delivery. Content's funny. It's a bunch of one-liners, but his delivery is so funny. And it's a delivery like only Mitch can do. You know what I'm talking about? When somebody else tries to do a Mitch Hedberg joke, you're like, bro, that just... It doesn't work. It's like when people try to quote Monty Python movies, and you're like, just stop. You sound like such an indoor kid. So anyway, I saw Mitch Hedberg, and I consider myself to be lucky. So then I started thinking, I should go to more live things. That way when I'm old and my kids like cool vintage stuff, I can say, yeah, I got to see that live when I was, you know, whatever. Um, so... I went to this concert recently, maybe it was spurred on by this, and uh, it was a third eye blind concert. <laughs> now, I don't think that later in life there's going to be a huge third eye blind following, and my kids are going to be so stoked that I went and saw them, but uh, I went and saw them because I liked the guys who I was going with, so you know third eye blind, it's... I wish you would step back from that ledge, my friend. Those guys. Uh, what else do they sing? I want something else to get me through this. semi charm kind of life. That song. All right, so we've all heard it. All listened to them. And sure, they're, they're whatever. But I got to go. Two of my good buddies, Jeff Lucky. Uh, who is the guitarist for a band called For All Seasons. Go check them out. Uh, they're incredible. And this guy is just a genius on guitar and such a good guy. And my buddy Dom, who I've talked about on here before, who is a crazy musician in his own right and one of my closest friends. So, man, I was just so pumped because, you know, we all have this appreciation for music and for presentation, and it was going to be a fun night. So we go down, where was it? Down in San Diego. I don't remember the name of the place, but I went there, and we're listening to Third Eye Blind on the way down there to get stoked up. I'm trying to memorize a few phrases 
so I don't look like some stooge that, <laughs> that's out of place. And I was thinking on the way down there, I was like, what kind of people are going to be at this concert? You know, is this going to be just old heads holding on to the glory days, you know, or is it somehow there's this new insurgence of millennials who are just now falling in love with the 90s? Like, who knows? Well, it turns out the answer is it's old heads. It is all the guys who have not washed their third eye blind t-shirts. They probably had like that girlfriend, the one who got away in the 90s and now their whole life revolves around memories and photo albums. Uh, And so at one point, dude, there's so many funny things that happened that night. But the band is singing. I don't know what song. I didn't recognize the song, but it was a slower song. And we're all three there, standing there uncomfortably close to each other. And we look over and there's this guy who is huge. Like, as tall as I am, 6'8", but bodybuilder huge. And he is weeping while singing the lyrics to this song. And so we all kind of three look at each other and like, what is going on? And then I look over (laughs) and my buddy Dom who's with us, who is thoroughly uncomfortable with physical contact. Like, a handshake is a little bit too much for this guy. And there's some guy who is draping his arms all over Dom. <laughs> like, his arms wrapped around Dom's shoulders in kind of a, you know, we're all in this together type of vibe. <laughs> and Dom is just sweating and looking to us for help. And there's no way Jeff and I are getting him out of that. So we're loving life. And then right after that, Dom goes to the bar to get a drink. And here's the story according to Dom. He said that he was standing at the bar and he could see out of the corner of his eye some guy was staring at him. So finally, after like a minute, he looks over at the guy and the guy says... I don't like your attitude, bro. And Tom says, I was like, well, what'd you say? And he says, I said, hey, man, we just got here. And so Jeff and I are enjoying ourselves at the concert, and Dom is just smothered in all that humanity has to offer. Some guy's draped all over him. Then he goes and gets in a fight at the bar. The nicest guy I know. Uh, that's third eye blind though, isn't it? Uh, so classic third eye blind. Oh man, that's funny. Well, in a previous podcast, I talked about an interview that, uh, I said is one of my favorite interviews. I've seen it throughout the years. The interview is from 2001, but I've probably watched this thing dozens of times. It's Bill O'Reilly interviewing Marilyn Manson. I'm telling you, it is great. I, I, I want to break it down on on here because I think it's that interesting and there's some really good points in it. Uh, so I've got some clips from the interview that I'll that will play on here, but I would encourage you go listen to the full thing. It's it's a great interview. Um, so here it is. I'm going to start it and then we'll kind of break it down here. What's your message? What are you trying to get across in the lyrics to these songs? It's always about being yourself and, and not being ashamed of 
being different or thinking different. Um, I try and take everyone's ideals, common morals, flip them around, make people look at them differently, question them so that uh, you're not always taking things for granted. All right, noble. But why the bizarre get-up? Why the bizarre presentation, which can be misinterpreted? I think everybody's got a presentation. Everybody looks a certain way because they want to convey a certain image. You look a certain way because you want people to listen to you in a certain way. Man, he's right, isn't he? He's right. And that's not a bad thing. Um, I think that, you know, dressing a certain way, presenting yourself a certain way because you want people to listen to you in a certain way is just shows extreme intentionality, you know? And I think that extreme intentionality should go into connecting with your target demographic. You have to be intentional to um, pinpoint your target demographic to know what you're going for uh, and then to recognize what they need to hear to receive. Uh, I don't know, man. That's, that to me shows professionalism. It shows that you care about it. It shows that you care more about that person receiving what you have to say than just saying, I said something. When I was in you know, my job as a pastor, I always told people in ministry, I said, our, our goal is not to share the gospel, right? Which is just talking about the, the central message of the Bible. It's not to share the gospel. The main goal is for somebody to receive the gospel. And so you have to massage the way that you say things and change your dress for people to receive you the best. You know, if I'm going to a job interview, that's not the time to show how comfortable I am in short shorts, right? Which I am. Uh, but I dress well because I want to come across professional. You know, I speak differently when I'm speaking to junior hires or when I'm speaking to parents or when I'm playing basketball. Um, I dress differently in all those scenarios too. And I, that's not losing yourself. You know, that's what some people say. That's not that. It's not manipulation. Man, that's, that is smart. Um, there are probably some people who could go to a skate park and have great conversations. <laughs> there are also people who would go and immediately be distrusted or avoided. So if your goal is to connect with people, you know, present for connection with your target audience. All right, here's the next part. You're a pretty well-spoken guy, yet in your records you use a lot of F-word, a lot of swearing, and this and that. Again, is it necessary to get your message across to use that kind of language? All that necessary? Sometimes. I think sometimes when you're making a point, I don't think that my lyrics are uh, overlaced with profanity because I myself don't speak. Uh, using a lot of profanity in normal conversation, but I think when you're making something aggressive and you need to get a point across if you're angry, sometimes profanity is necessary. It's better to use a curse word than to hurt somebody else, I find. Here's one point he makes. He says, you know, swearing is necessary if you really need to get your point across. Then emphasize with swearing or whatever will drive your point home. So I don't think that I agree with this, but I do agree that, unfortunately, this is where we've gotten in society. And this is, this is too bad. It, is, it has been generations and years and years of uh, our yes never being yes, and our no never being no, so nobody ever trusts a statement anymore. 
Nobody trusts a commitment anymore. And people have been wishy-washy for so long that we have to say things like, you know, I'm really serious this time, you know, or emphatic adjectives to feelings or threats, because if you don't, then you're not really taken seriously. Um, I just, I've played that scenario out with promises with my kiddos before. I remember watching Hook growing up, and when Robin Williams misses his kid's baseball game, I just thought to myself, dude, I do not want to be the dad who has to put qualifiers, or I'm really serious, or I know that I've promised this before, but I'm going to come through this time. Um, but because it happens so frequently, nobody trusts anything, you know? And I don't know that we can necessarily fix that as a society, um, but I do think that we can fix that as individuals, you know? We can commit to being trustworthy to the point where people will say, well, you know, Graham didn't raise his voice, but if he said it, he meant it. And we can start giving credence to the in-control requests and feelings of others. And that may keep them from feeling like they have to go crazy to be heard. You know, my wife um, grew up in southern family from Mississippi and though her immediate family isn't really like this the extended family her dad is one of 13 siblings and with that many you just kind of feel like you have to be the loudest to be heard you know you have to be dramatic and larger than life and so I'm sure that there's some sort of squeaky wheel syndrome where yeah you're not going to even be paid attention to unless you're making a racket and you're louder than everybody else. And listen, this is exactly where the interview goes. You can take some of your lyrics as, you know, you'll understand when I'm dead. I mean, disturbed kids could take the lyrics and say, you know, when I'm dead, everybody's going to know me. Well, I think that's a very valid point. And I think that um, that's a reflection of not necessarily this program, but of television in general. If you die and enough people are watching, then you become a martyr, you become a hero, you become well-known. So when you have things like Columbine and you have these kids that are angry and they have something to say and no one's listening, the media sends a message that if you do something loud enough and it gets our attention, then you will be famous for it. Those kids ended up on the cover of Time magazine. The media gave them exactly what they wanted. and That's why I never did any interviews when that happened, when I was getting blamed for it, because I felt that I would be contributing to what I found to be uh, reprehensible. Man, this is one of my favorite parts of the interview. I think he is so right on. He's smart, isn't he? Man, Marilyn Manson's smart. Because um, I thought, if you know, if my three kids want something... And only the one who yells the loudest and throws the biggest tantrum gets their wish, then I'm sending a message, right? I'm saying, this is what you need to do to get noticed. <laughs> and if I say that, guess who's throwing a tantrum the next time? Every last one of them. But when grounded, calm feelings and doubts and fears and emotions are valued, then there's no need to, you know, scream the loudest. Now, I'm not saying that'll never be the, the, of course, for sure, there's going to be moments when the raw feeling or emotion 
is coupled with screaming and fierce anger. I get that. That's fine. That's necessary. But don't set the precedent that says only the really serious or only the ones who seem like they're an 8 or above out of 10 get validated because that's dangerous. Never before in the history of this country have so many corrupting influences descended upon children at one time. Sure. And that most children don't understand what you're doing and why you're using the F word and why you're acting bizarre. And this can be very, very troubling to children who don't have direction, who don't have responsible parents. Anything can be misinterpreted. People can look at Christ on a cross and think, this is an image of murder, this is violent, this has sexual imagery in it. And it just, I think it's my job as an artist to be out there pushing people's buttons and making them question everything. And, uh, and I respect you for challenging me, and that's why I came on the show. Okay. That is almost exactly what I viewed my job as a youth pastor to be. Um, he says that it's his job as an artist to be out there pushing people's buttons and making them question everything. Uh, people would ask me all the time as a youth pastor, what's your goal? Is it to keep kids in church? Nope. Is it to keep kids on the straight and narrow? Nope. My goal was to get them to question everything. That was it. I wanted to bring up the most controversial topics. I wanted to bring up the, the arguments that people have made against Christianity that were like really, really hard to refute. I wanted to talk about that because I have seen so many college-age kids or adults who just nodded in agreement their way through church growing up. And then they thought one day, wait a second, I don't believe this, and, and went away. And it wasn't a part of their life, and they never entertained it again. So I would have parents email me and say, uh, my kid is really questioning if God even exists. And they were worried, and I would say, that's great. Great, man, that has to happen. Because God is not afraid of questions or doubts or skepticism. Right? God's not afraid of that. The way relationships grow is to present what you have a hang-up with and work it through with that person. Right? If Kristen and I never had a disagreement, our relationship would either be extremely surface level or fake. And that, unfortunately, is the way to describe the majority of people's relationships with God. Right? It's, it's extremely surface level or fake. Because we are taught not to question the things that don't make sense or are difficult to believe. And, yeah, kids and adults, man, when I teach, I never, ever say, here's the answer. Because who am I? I always say, here's the question. Because I believe that God wants to answer that question differently for every person that asks. Probably talking to a bunch of different people right now on the podcast as far as where you are in this kind of faith journey or where you would classify yourself as. And I would encourage you, ask questions. Uh, don't get lazy. Don't get lazy on either side. Uh, it is very lazy to say, you know what? Uh, God is stupid and Christianity is stupid. And so I'm never, I'm just going to be comfortable with myself and sit at home and never seek truth. And I'm just going to kind of float through life. That's lazy. 
seek truth. It's important. You know what else is lazy? Is to say, okay, I don't, I can't ever understand anything, so I'm never going to try to understand anything, and I'm never going to try to grow in my relationship with God, and I'm never going to ask questions. That is also lazy. Uh, Socrates, is that right? The unexamined life is not worth living. This is, it is so important for you to constantly be asking yourself questions because that is how your relationship with God will strengthen. Whether it is non-existent according to you right now and you're just seeking, pursue, pursue, man. Ask the tough questions. Lean into the doubts because I have full faith that your questions I probably can't answer because I'm a moron, but God for sure will meet you in the middle of that. And if you are a lifelong Jesus follower, continue to ask questions because that is how faith and relationship grows. So, man, don't run away from that. And if you're a parent listening and your kid starts to have questions, thank your lucky stars because there are a lot of kids who are too afraid to ask questions or, uh, or refuse to. And that is a far more dangerous position than somebody who is actively seeking truth. So, uh We can be people who ask. A little bit of inspiration today, and we'll try again tomorrow.